Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Customer Strategy Podcast. My name is Nil Spinya. I'm your host, and today I'm joined by one of the top 10 digital transformation influencers in the world. And he's the author of the brand new book, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, Mr. Howard Tiersky. Howard, welcome to the show. Hey, Nils. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure, man. I'm super excited to dig in with you today on all things about your new book, all things about digital transformation. But first, let's want to find out a little bit of background about you. Can you share with this audience who you are, where you come from, type of work that you do? Sure, sure. Well, let's see. Who am I and where do I come from? I'm originally from Chicago, uh, but I've been living in the New York area for most of the last 30 years. Um, I uh, have five kids. And my uh, focus in my business for the last few decades has been on what we today call digital transformation, working with large brands to help them figure out how to go from where they are to where they really need to be to be delivering the customer journeys that today's digital customers expect and demand. So, okay, you mentioned um, that's what we call it today. What do we call it? I know you've been at this game doing this for a long time, a lot of oh, experience. Man. What, did, what did you call it beforehand? Well, what, when I started, what we called it New media, new, new media. media. Okay. And before <laughs> and that, was that really it was before the, media. <laughs> yeah, well, right. And that was before the internet was the biggest part of it. You know, we were doing CD-ROMs, DVDs, kiosks, things like yep. that. Yep. And, uh, and then of course the internet just eclipsed everything and, uh, you know, and then what internet, digital e-commerce, various, various, uh, buzzwords have come and gone over the years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And okay. So a lot of buzzwords have come and gone. What's been the consistent thread in, in your mind? Well, I think the consistent thread is something that's not even specific to digital, but it says winning with customers is about doing a better job of solving their pain and problems and giving them more delight than your competitors. That's it. And doing that, of course, doesn't only involve things that are digital, but the way that digital itself has become such a central force in the lives of probably pretty much nearly all of the customers, you know, there's always an exception. Actually, I don't know if, have you seen this uh, show on HBO with Fran Leibowitz and um, Martin Scorsese? Uh-uh. No, oh, it's great. I, I highly recommend it. Well, Fran Leibowitz is kind of like a famous old time New Yorker. She must be in her seventies now. Wrote for, I think, gosh, Vanity Fair magazine and a bunch of others. Yeah. Uh, very, very funny. Anyway, so she uh, is on, so they've done this sort of documentary about her with her and Martin Scorsese. In any case, she talks all the time about the fact that she doesn't have a computer. She doesn't have a mobile phone. She doesn't have any digital devices. Like she's like old school. And, you know, out of that, I mean, honestly, I think that's a key part of why they've done this documentary about her because she's such an interesting figure because digital is not the center of her life. It makes her an exotic oddity. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's every role is going to have some sort of exception. But other than friendly voice and perhaps a few <laughs> other tiny percentage of people, most people in this world today, certainly in the United States, are living a lifestyle that has digital at the center. So if you want to solve their problems, meet their needs, exceed their expectations, you've got to be doing digital in a way that is, frankly, you know, increasingly elegant. Yeah. And you've been doing this with very large brands over the last 20, 30 years, right? Can you share with us a few of the types of organizations that you worked with? Oh, gosh, sure. It's going to be sound like a list of the Fortune 1000. But sure, I mean, some some brands I've worked with, NBC, General Electric, General Motors, uh, Airbus, Avis, Mattel, um, you know, uh, Universal Studios, um, Annie, um, you know, I mean, I kind of keep going, but you know, it's, and, it's pretty much 
over the years have had the opportunity to work with. It's been really a tremendous privilege to have the opportunity to work with so many large brands and really get to understand what are the challenges they have uh, trying to transform what works. You know, I've seen as for sure as much failure as success. And all of that is really what I was able to then draw on both in the work I do every day today. I'm much better at it today than I was 25 years ago. I'll tell you. (laughs) And and, and, and was what really enabled me to put this sort of into a system, which I document in this book, because it's not stuff I all made up. It's stuff that I observed and I really got to see what works and what doesn't work with big companies. And, and that the system is, the, is what I want to dig into a bunch. But before we get there, because that, that's fascinating and I know our, our listeners are going to want to know, understand there are five steps to the system. We're going to get into that. Um, but when we talk about some of those incredible companies, the uh, NBCs and A&Es and whatnot. When you talk about them going digital, like, can you give us just, you know, high level 50,000 foot view? What does that even mean to those organizations that have 10, 20, 100,000 employees or serving hundreds of thousands of customers? What exactly are we talking about when you talk about going digital with them? Well, going digital, to be perfectly honest, does, doesn't mean anything at all. <laughs> Fair. But, you know, it's like, it's like every other buzzword. What does it mean? I don't know what it means. But, but here's what I do know. Here's what they need to be doing and what okay. many of them are trying to do. What they need to be doing is saying, okay, we live in a world where our customers are living a digital lifestyle. They expect to engage with us on digital channels. There's a wide range of technology that allows us to make that happen. There are uh, proven best practices about how to most effectively create the types of experiences and interfaces and such. Plus, there's the opportunity to continue to innovate and create new things. And so for a company to really do well today, they've better, you know, what I always say is it's not about being a digital business. It's about resonating with an audience of digital customers. So does that mean you need to have, I mean, is it, does it mean you need to have an app and a website? I mean, duh, right? But who doesn't? And plenty of companies that are doing digital poorly have the list, the checkmark list of things. So it's a lot more than that, but it's about really understanding what is the journey that your customers are on today? when they engage with you from your sales process all the way through the end of the customer and renewal and everything, what does that journey look like today? And where are the opportunities to improve it and make it more differentiated so that you are really an ideal choice for that digital customer? And this is an example of how it transcends beyond the app. Taco Bell has recently started creating two drive-through lanes at every one of the restaurants. One lane, which is the traditional lane, when you pull up and you look at the menu and say, ah, you know, I'll have a burrito, a taco, whatever else. The other lane is only for people who have already placed orders with the app, have been texted that the app is ready, so they can just pull up and get the order. Because you don't want to be in line behind a bunch of people trying to decide or ask, them, what's the difference between a tostada and a, you know, I mean, <laughs> you just want to go up. And, so, so this is a great example of shaping an aspect of the business, which is very much a brick and mortar component of the business for the digital customer. That's really, uh, that's perfect. I think that that hits on the, um, some of the transformations we've seen in large companies across the board, Taco Bell. I, was, that, I actually wasn't aware of that. That's phenomenal. About uh, two weeks ago, I was in Disney World and we went on family vacation to Disney World. There was not a single place um, in, the, in the park that uh, served food that you could go up to walk up and ask and verbally give an order aside from one of the little carts out in the the main areas. But every restaurant was all based on the app. And 
Well, number one, it was COVID time. So, you know, they needed to keep everybody separate and that was totally cool. But number two, it was a phenomenally better experience than having to wait for potentially 20, 30, 40 minutes in a line only to get to the front to try to remember all five of your kids' uh, meals recommendations and all the no pickles here and no mustard there, right? And it was a way better experience because you could choose everything and get it there. So that is also one that I just experienced recently. Would love your thoughts on, on that. Did you have a hand in that too, by the way? <laughs> No, uh, we've done work with Universal Studios theme parks in Orlando, but uh, I myself have not worked with Disney. Okay. But okay. Um, yeah, I think Disney has, though, done a tremendous job. And of course, the Magic Band is really industry leading as a single yes. RFID device that can identify as customers and allows you to do everything from pay to, you know, access the park when you're allowed to and not allowed to and uh, you know, identify you as a guest at your hotel, open your hotel room door. I mean, just a fantastic you know, so much of it is just about removing inconvenience and that that's what you just said is a great example. I think in general, if you are asking your customers to stand in line, wait on hold, sort through stuff to find their size or whatever, mm -hmm. navigate your store and get lost. If you're doing any of these kinds of things, you're just doing it wrong in yeah. a digital age because others have figured out how to remove those points of pain. And if you're leaving that there, you know, you're, you're going to increasingly become obsolete and, you know, I always hate to be too dire. I'm a positive person, but this is part of why I called my book Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. Yeah. Because we see all these brands today. It's not hard to name them, you know, whether it's Circuit City or Sports Authority, or Toys R Us and on and on and on. Great brands that were loved at one point in time and have gone out of business. And, you know, there's always a complex story behind why any given company goes out of business. But I would say, by and large, the thing that's driving businesses out of business today is their failure to keep up with yeah. the expectations of digital customers. Obviously, COVID is a whole other story, and that has not. But even COVID is kind of about that, too, because those businesses that were ready to, to pivot and serve customers digitally, there are exceptions, right? Movie theaters, there are places that, you know, no matter what they did, but even movie theaters, you could argue, well, okay, the physical movie theater was unusable during COVID, but if you were an entertainment company and realized that, you know, we need a diverse portfolio and physical events and movie theaters are not the only part and you were streaming to the home doing other things, then you might've defined during COVID. You know, my own business, for example, we have an event venue in Manhattan, which is a workshop facility where companies come and we've had everyone from NBC to Facebook to Amazon come there and do workshops. Not for the last year, I've been paying expensive rent on a New York facility and no one's there. The plants are all dead, you know? So I'm looking forward to that being resuscitated. If that was my whole business, I would have been out of business. Fortunately, it's only a small part of my business. So what do you do? You take your losses. Um, but point is, um, you know, those companies that were ready to be digital have done well during COVID. And those companies that hadn't made that, hadn't done that kind of, hadn't gone through that kind of transformation, they were the ones who were flat-footed. Yeah, 100%. And you've been working inside of these organizations for a long time, and then you started your own firm. Um, what, just curious at a high level, what does it really take for a company to align around that kind of a strategy, to really be in a position where they can take advantage of this, to align the various departments, people's organizations, the whole nine yards. They were talking about some big organizations. So how have you been able to successfully orchestrate this inside of companies and as a consultant, as, as an agency as well? Yeah. Well, let's look at it this way. Ready, aim, fire, right? Okay. So what's ready? Ready means 
you understand the customer. And there are some other things that it would be good to understand as well. Because if you don't understand, the first is the customer, because if you think of the whole goal of any kind of strategy or transformation is to influence customer behavior. And I think I'm amazed at how often that is not front and center in everyone's thinking. Mm-hmm. The goal of a business is to drive customer behavior. Now, I'm not saying there aren't other things that are good to do, but if you can successfully get your customer to do what you want them to do, to buy, to buy more, to refer their friends, et cetera, then that will cover a multitude of sins in other areas <laughs> of your business if it's not perfect. And if you've got everything else in order, but you just can't get those pesky customers to buy anything, I mean, you're out of business, right? Yeah. So that has got to be your first goal. And so if the goal of any transformation, and there may be other goals, right? You want to improve efficiency and improve productivity and all those things. But even those things in the end are probably serving an end goal of still doing a better job of driving the customer. For example, if you can improve efficiency and productivity such that you can lower your your cost, such that you can lower your price to the customer, you can be more competitive in the marketplace. Yeah. So I think, you know, ready is making sure you understand the customer because so many companies have a only a very vague understanding of the customer outdated understanding of the customer and by the way if you haven't done a whole bunch of customer research in the last three months i guarantee you your understanding of your customer is outdated yep. because your customer has been changing more rapidly than ever before yep so um that is and, and by the way it's also good to understand what your competitors are doing uh, what technologies are becoming available and what the situation is with your own technology with your own existing customer journey, because very often, you know, I mean, I'll go in and, and, and present about a vision of, of what some company's customer journey should or could be. And executives will say, well, I don't understand. How is this different from what we're doing today? And I'll say, oh, wow. They don't actually even know, you know, what the actual experience is of someone who tries to order online pickup in the store. Do they know that you can only do it in one store at a time, or you can't do a return that way, or you can't pay with PayPal or, or whatever? So we have to start by understanding. So there's a whole bunch of things, and it can be done rapidly. But if you don't have all that stuff, then you're really you're really blindfolded. You know, you have to have the knowledge and information. And in my book, I go into really in great detail what all that is and provide some tools and techniques to gather that. Cool. So at, so at a high, a high level, that's the ready piece. At a high level, what's aim and fire? And then I want to get into the book because I know there's a lot of that that's going to support exactly what you're talking about here. Yeah, sure. So aim is the vision. So what are we going to do, right? And there's never only one right answer, but it's how do you, and, and in order to aim, you have to get a lot of people on board. Um, I don't know if you've ever played one of these giant multiplayer games, but sometimes I'll have them like at the Olympics or at a, um, at a movie theater. And everyone in the audience is given like a white or black card or sometimes use your phones. And the whole audience is working together to do something like shoot down aliens, right? You've done that. Great. So it's, it's a lot of fun. But if everybody in the audience has a different idea and a different strategy of what alien you should shoot at, you're going to wind up shooting at nothing. You somehow have to get everyone agreeing. First, we're going to shoot that guy. Let's all aim over there. And then we're going to shoot that guy and let's all aim over there. So not that I am, am, am recommending that we shoot anybody. And hopefully the aliens, when they arrive, will be friendly and we won't have to shoot them. But, <laughs> um, you know, we have to get everyone aligned on where are we going and what are we trying to do? So I mentioned our workshop facility earlier. That's one of the reasons why we built a whole workshop facility in Manhattan. And obviously it's not the only place you could do it, but to bring people together, to make sure the key people who are going to be leaders and, and, ha- and implementers of whatever this transformation is, have a voice, understand why we're doing it, and ultimately are on board because resistance to change is one of the biggest barriers 
that companies face when they're trying to transform. So that's really what aiming is about. And my book, I talk about customer journey mapping and other methods to really create a clear vision of what that future customer journey should be. That's the aim. And then, well, the fire, you know, very often you can aim, but then you get scared. You know, it's like, I guess it's like, I'm not much of a a gun. I have, I have gone to a firing range once in a while, but you know, if I was out hunting, which I've never done, I could imagine you could be pointed at the animal and you're like, "Eh, I don't want to do this. You know, I'd probably be me. So, you know, fire is like, okay, how are we going to actually with full force and everyone aligned, really move forward and do something? And there's a lot of practices, whether they're agile software development practices, um, lean uh, manufacturing style approaches to creating minimum, minimum viable products, bringing them to market. It's like, how do you have a winning strategy for how to actually get it done and move towards that vision and um, with speed and effectiveness and being able to be flexible as you hit different challenges and issues and, and go around them. So I think um, and there's challenges in all three of those things. They're challenging around really getting all the insights together. There's challenging around getting everyone aligned. And then there's challenging around execution. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. Love the ready aim fire and love that it's not fire ready aim, which have been in <laughs> certain organizations where that also feels like it is. And I imagine that might even be a conflict sometimes where it's like, haven't we been through all this already? Can't we just get going? And it's imagine you got to spend a lot of time bringing them back. Nope, we got to do step by step in order to get it right. Is that right? Absolutely right. And the analogy that I use for, for that is, to say, you know, is like, as I say, let's imagine it's really urgent. You're trying to go to a place you've never been. You're getting in your car and it's really urgent to get there. I mean, you don't have one second spare. So you have two choices. You can take the time to put the address you're trying to go to in your GPS, wait for it to calculate, and then follow those instructions. You could say, I don't have time for the GPS. I'm just going to get in my car and I'm going to floor it. Well, you know, it feels good because you're getting moving faster, but where the hell are you going? And what are the odds that you're going to wind up where is it you really want to go? They're pretty poor. So sometimes you have to fight that urge to say, we're in such a hurry, we have to start today and say, wait a second, we do have to be efficient. You don't want to spend two hours putting stuff in the GPS, yeah. that's for sure. And that's one of the reasons why I try in the book to describe very rapid, efficient methods of doing research, stuff that you can learn in only a few weeks not stuff that you have to take six months or nine months or a year, depending, of course, on the scope of what you're trying to learn. But you need that foundation. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're aiming blindfold. You're, yeah. you're, if you don't do ready, you're right. Some people do fire aim, but some people do aim, except they're blindfolded. So they're <laughs> aiming, but they can't see what they're aiming at because they don't have that information. They're just aiming in their imagination because they have an idea. They came up with an idea in a conference room. They're excited about it. But it's not in the world. It's not real. It's just something in their imagination. And so when they throw that dart, you know, who knows what they're going to get. Yeah. Awesome. Love it. Love that metaphor. And the, the something you got to slow down to go fast, right? You got to put in, put in the destination in order to get there at the right time. Very cool. All right. Rapid, efficient methods. That's fantastic. Those are sound like crispy, juicy, tactical things. Let's dive into the um, steps in your book that you lay out. Or actually, sorry, got a little ahead of myself. I was uh, kind of firing right there before I wanted to do a little ready aim myself. Um, you mentioned before that this the book was the culmination of all your experience. And you know, oftentimes people get to a point in their career and they're like, wow, like I can do this obviously a lot better now than I could back then and I want to help. So what was the impetus for even putting all this together? Because it's no small feat to put together a book like this, taking you know 30 years of experience and doing that. So why this book and, and why now? Well, you know, there's a few different reasons. Uh, one reason is because uh, you know, we're a relatively small company. We're you know up to somewhere somewhere around 100 people, something like that. But 
there's so much demand for this information out there. And so, um, you know, I, I just felt, I mean, we work with companies mostly in the United States. Now some of our kind clients are international. So we're doing work with them internationally. But, uh, you know, I think there's just such a broader market than what we are, you know, in a position to reach. So that was one reason. Frankly, the second reason is, you know, it's marketing, right? I mean, to be perfectly blunt, a book is a way of getting our message out there about how we approach things, which I think is really somewhat unique in some ways. And in other ways, it's really not unique, but it's bringing together all the best practices into a process that really works. And so, you know, part of the theory from a pure business perspective is, hey, listen, give everyone the blueprint. Don't hold anything back. This book is 400 pages long, and it comes with a password-protected website that contains dozens of supplemental videos, PDFs, Excel spreadsheet tools, InDesign templates. I mean, we have tried to give you absolutely everything that we can in a book and associated with And yet, we know that there are going to be people who are going to look at all that and go, you know, I think I could use some help. <laughs> so we want to empower people to do it on their own, we really do. But we know that some of those people are going to decide, you know what, in addition to all that, we want some professional help. And hopefully, uh, because they've connected with our content, you know, we'll, we'll be one of the ones that they, they might call. And I think our business is going to roughly double this year from last year. So I, I do believe, maybe for multiple reasons, including mending coronavirus and other things, but you know, I believe that it's been a successful strategy for us in terms of getting our name out there and, and connecting with people. So that was another reason. Cool. Fantastic. I love it. You know, those, um, taking the, taking the real world experience, putting together a framework and using, or even sharing the framework that you use with your clients, I think is an incredibly powerful way to just one, help people who would never probably engage your firm anyways, but think positively about you. Again, thinking about the, the, who the world is and how they see you. And two, for the people who do need your help, they're already primed. You don't have to spend a lot of time educating them on how you actually go about doing this. So um, I can imagine you did a fair amount of your own work on your audience, knowing exactly who they are, the challenges they're going through, and what you wanted the customer journey for them to be like. Um, and it's cool to be in that position and not be in the one where it's the uh, shoemaker's kids have no shoes kind of situation, right? Right, right. <laughs> All right. So let's get into the book and, and talk a little bit about the five steps. Um, if you would walk us through, maybe just start with the beginning and, and just let's go from there and we'll dig into each of these pieces. And those, those crispy tactical things are going to be really um, wonderful for our audience to take away and just think about. And then they can get a copy of your book and all the additional materials and dig in deeper. Yeah, sure. So the fundamental question the book's trying to answer is, how do you guide this kind of transformation to get from where you are to becoming a customer that's truly loved, sorry, to becoming a company that's truly loved by your customers and one that really can go toe to toe with pure play digital companies and can really compete, you know, 100% in the digital world. That's the goal. So how do you do that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, understanding the customer is really key. So the first of the five steps is to understand the customer. And we go through in great detail, many, many tactics. You don't have to use all of the tactics we described in the book, you know, but Many, many ways. So you should never be left feeling like, well, I don't really know how to do this because this book is going to give you a tremendous amount of specific strategies, things like observation, ethnography, ways to analyze data, ways to apply rules to evaluate your different digital touch points to see whether they're where they're working, where they're not working, all kinds of very, very specific things. We're not just going to tell you, hey, make sure you understand your customer. Hey, good luck with that. You know, uh, I could have written a much shorter book. So um, and some people probably wish that I had. <laughs> <laughs> but um, then the second is to map the journey. And so, you know, it's one thing to understand what the customer's needs, wants, fears, et cetera, are, but understand, first of all, what is their journey as they're going through their experience with your brand today? And even what is the broader journey that they're on? Meaning if, if you're a hotel 
your customers are, let's say you're a vacation resort, people are planning vacations. Well, that's a lot more than hotels, right? So really understanding what is the process customers are going through today? And of course, there might not only be one process, but there are a number of sort of dominant ways that people are planning vacations. Do you really understand what those steps and processes are and how they're going about it? Because of course, it's been changing. Understanding that is critical if you want to create an experience that's great for customers. And then how do they do everything else? Like, for example, when they get to your hotel, how do they go about figuring out what all are the amenities that your hotel even has? Mm-hmm. Is that a good experience or, you know, are they confused or they never learn about some of the great things they can be enjoying in your hotel because yes, it's in that little whole bound book in the drawer in the desk, but they never look at that thing. How many people even look at that thing? How many hotels even know how many of your guests even look at it? So we provide techniques for how you can really understand what's going on with your customer journey. And then usually what you discover is that there are warts, points of pain, glitches, problems, and also some really good things. That's really important too, because you know you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. So right. understanding the current and then moving to the future and saying, so what's the vision? If we look at what our direct competitors are doing, if we look what digital you know, leaders are doing, if we look at what the Amazons and the Disneys and the you know Zappos's and the Hulu's and the Ubers of the world are doing, even if you're a plumbing business, right? It's not only about looking at companies that are your direct competitors, what is the vision of that customer experience that would drive the behaviors that we really want from our customers? And once you have that vision mapped out, the third step is to build it, to build the vision, which is easier said than done, of course, but that's that fire part that I was talking about earlier. And we go into ways of applying the design thinking methodology. And in fact, we introduced kind of a, what we call design thinking 2.0 in the book, which is essentially all of the really the genius that was built into design thinking by its original creators and all of the evolution that's happened in design thinking, and then layered in with some important changes that we've made to it. I would call them more enhancements because we haven't taken away anything, but we've added some additional steps that we find really make it suitable, particularly for the kind of digital world we live in today. So those are the kind of three, let's call it the initial three steps of, you know, understand the situation, map the vision and execute. But while you do those three things, there's two other parallel steps. One is to optimize the short term, because the process of going through those first three steps can take quite a while. For most companies, it's years. And very often, the executives or the board or the CEO or whoever's funding these kinds of initiatives, you know, they don't want to be told, just give me $10 million. And by four years from now, you're going to see some awesome stuff that's going to be making money, right? I mean, that is just not a winning strategy. So you need to figure out how you're going to show results more quickly to keep the faith, to keep the funding, And by the way, it's not only internally, your customers as well. If you have an experience that is subpar, like most companies do, according to a study by Forbes, I think it was, no, uh, Gartner actually, 84% of customers say that most brands underwhelm them when it comes to digital experiences. And of course, you know, it's what their expectations are being set by that small number. It's the Amazon effect, right? So, um, you know, figuring out what are those easier to fix things. There's usually things, low-hanging fruit that you can fix quickly. And it's never been the case that we've gone into a company and done that kind of analysis and not come up with lots of things. Sometimes it's just people are confused here. You need to add an extra line of instruction. You need to move this button. You need to change this graphic. You need to provide larger product photos, things that are very simple. But unless you go through the process of really understanding the challenges people are having, it looks fine to you. You're like, oh, what's wrong with this? You know, I remember doing a study once for one of the largest automakers in the world. And it turned out one of the biggest problems with the website was the type of photography they had of the cars because they had all these shots of the cars, like 
like it wasn't Jeep, but just as an example, if it was Jeep, the Jeep's climbing the mountain with the sun setting behind it, you know, some like glamorous woman draped over the car, these beauty shots, right? Well, that's great, but you know, when the sun's coming down, the light is kind of weird and everything, and people just want to know what the damn thing looks like. And what we learned is they want to see things like, what does the trunk look like when it's open? You know, what does the entertainment console look like? They want visual information and we were giving them exclusively these images meant to create a romantic feeling, which is okay to do a little bit, but we were not supporting the decision process of those customers who were trying to evaluate our vehicle and we were showing it in sunset light where everything is in shadow. Although it was beautiful photography, really, truly artistic, but not what the customer needed. So just as an example, that's the kind of thing where you say, oh, how hard will that be fixed? You know what? The client said, oh, we have all those shots. We don't even need to shoot them. We've shot those shots before. They're just not on the website. It's like, okay. So that's not very hard at all. You know, let's just swap out the photography and boom, we're getting more leads. Hmm. So obviously not everything is easy. That's why you need transformation. But sometimes things are easy. And so let's find those easy things. and do that. So that's the fourth thing, what we call optimize the short term. And then the fifth is to lead the change. And we talk about the, that as the fifth thing. And we talk about it last in the book because- it's helpful to understand the whole landscape of what you need to do. But of course, leadership is not something that starts at the end. <laughs> it starts at the beginning. And in fact, it's arguably the most important part because as we said earlier, when you're trying to transform a large organization, you generally encounter a lot of resistance to that change. And so you really have to become an expert at bringing people together and being a kind of a combination of a general and a diplomat, you know, uh, and, a, and an artistic visionary to be able to really get an organization to do the things, even if they seem obvious to you that they are needed. So those are the five steps. Awesome. Love, love that. And I can clearly see how each of those works in succession. And I love that you highlighted the, you know, optimizing for the short term and getting those wins and recognizing that some of the stuff's going to be long-term and some of it, there's stuff that you could do immediately, like those photos, examples, just that particular example. It's awesome. And the stat that 84% of brands underwhelm, I believe that hundred percent, it is the Amazon effect. Like why isn't shipping free and why isn't it here tomorrow with, or within six hours? I don't get it. Don't you guys function like Amazon? Haven't you uh, learned some of the tricks of the trade what happened <laughs> we once did customer research for a company that made um like mri machines and like big medical devices like that that were like millions of dollars or at least many hundreds of thousands of dollars and one thing we heard from the customers was a classic example of the amazon effect and they were complaining about the ordering and the the process between when they placed the order and when the machine was actually delivered when there's a lot of coordination needed and they said why is it that i can order a 12 dollar book on Amazon, and they tell me every step of the way exactly what's going on. I've ordered a $1.2 million MRI machine from your company. It's six weeks later, and I can't find out what's the status, when's it being delivered, nothing. That's just, you know, and I'm like, that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> what no, you say? It's, it's an incredible point. Absolutely. And, and the, the economics just make it that much more intense. Okay, $12 and they're giving me everything, you know, just like when FedEx and UPS originally rolled out the, the tracking of packages. The very first time that came out, it was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And all they did was display what they already were tracking internally because they obviously had to know right. where every package was. That was my right. And now with Uber though, when <laughs> FedEx just says your package will arrive today, you're like, today? Yeah. Wednesday. Where's the truck? When's it going to be rolling up? That's totally not up information, you know? So that's the fact, right? Expectations rise. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what's the license plate of the truck and what's the driver's age? And right. <laughs> um, on, the, on the leading the change piece, the, the number five, and you know, knowing about the resistance and in the world of, you know, in the B2B SaaS world, everything that are largely everything that we do from a customer um, perspective is, is driven by the customer success side of the house. So taking over post-sale in a B2B SaaS business. So there can be a lot of resistance to change as well. So curious for, in, you know, in your view, what are some of the most helpful strategies, techniques, tips, things that leaders of any business can do to help drive that change. You mentioned being a, you know, a general and a diplomat, but what is, what are some of the things that have you seen work the best to overcome resistance? Cause frankly, you're going to change a lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, it's a good point because it goes to one of the, one of the fallacies of digital transformation. And it was really exemplified for me by a question I got on a podcast I was on already like a year ago, I think it was, but it was a podcast for one of the largest um, cloud-based companies in the world. And the person interviewing me said, um, I forget the exact question, but it was something like, what do I think are the most important aspects of digital transformation, AKA cloud migration? And I was like, wait, what, 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 what was the question? <laughs> You know, digital transformation, aka cloud migration. You know, in other words, it was sort of trying to make it seem, and I can understand because this company was in the business of selling cloud tools, wanting people to migrate to the cloud, but it was trying to make the suggestion that the key cornerstone linchpin to digital transformation is a technology solution. And in this case, a cloud-based technology solution. And the reality is that that is those are critical enablers. But if you have customers that you're selling a product to and you are encouraging them in order to make the sale to get them to think that if they just buy this thing that they will somehow have digital transformation then you have led them down a false path and you know frankly in the old days when you were selling enterprise software you might have said well they've already cut the eight million dollar check so if it turns out they don't do much with the software i guess i won't make as much on maintenance but really I kind of accomplished my goal from a sales perspective. It's not my worry, you know. But on the other hand, if you're in the SaaS business and you sign them up and three months later they go, eh, we're, not, we're not getting the value, well, you really haven't gained much. So I think um, it's really important that SaaS companies are thinking about how to, you know, essentially answer the question you just asked. So, you know, how do you drive that transformation? Well, I guess your question was like, what, what can like a SaaS company do to try to, I, I think it goes back partly to that ready aim fire thing we talked about before. If someone says, Hey, I want to buy your SaaS product. Instead of asking how much, you know, <laughs> how many seats, mm -hmm. a thousand or 10,000, you know, the question should be, well, why, why do you want to buy it? Not to try to talk someone out of it. Although sometimes maybe you should talk them out of it, but to understand, well, what are their goals? What are they trying to accomplish? And 99 times out of a hundred, your SaaS product is only going to be one ingredient yeah. of the solution. And so make sure you talk that through with them. And by the way, that means you need people, salespeople or whatever title they have who have the knowledge to talk that through with them. And it may be industry specific, by the way. You may have a product where a pharmaceutical company wants to use it. The full recipe of success is going to be quite different than if they are you know, an apparel company. But understanding really what's their vision of what's the end goal they want and if you're speaking to someone who says, well, what's your goal? My goal is to deploy a new system by the end of 2021. Okay, th that is not the goal. 
that may be their personal KPI. They get their bonus if they do that. But then you need to speak to, like to their boss. You know, yeah. Like, you need to get to the person who can. And and I think a lot of times people are worried about like blowing the sale. You know, like hey, this person wants me. You know, there's an old there's an old uh, line in sales which is that when the customer says yes, stop selling. <laughs> but the problem, and that I think is, uh, I, I mean, I heard that probably 25 years ago. But the problem is that that presumes the kind of old-fashioned sale, yeah. which is to say the sale. But this that's not how cloud products are sold. And so I don't think that rule applies. And so when the customer says yes, then you should ask why. Why yeah. are you wanting to do this? And that then you can help them figure out what is the full recipe of what they're going to need for success. And some of it may be business opportunities for your company, for example, professional services, training, et cetera. And some of it may not. Some of it just may be some other thing that they need, some other partner, some kind of political alignment or whatever that they need in order to really have that recipe for success. Love it. Love it. And couldn't agree more um, on asking that asking that why and under uncovering the full need, right? Because you're right. Every SaaS solution out there is not a one size fits all pro customer problems. We solve this one thing. And if you don't know the full spectrum of what it is customers are really trying to solve, you're never going to be in a strategic position to offer additional product services or even keep them around as a customer because they'll only ever see you for that one thing, even if you know it or you don't. So love, love that advice there. Um, and the, uh, the and, you know, I just want to add one yeah. nuance to that, which is that a lot of SaaS companies work with integrators or other kinds yeah. of external professional services firms. And in theory, they should be doing that too, right? Many often, many times you may be brought in as a, as a SaaS platform by a consulting company, you know, Accenture or whoever, who's already doing that. And that's great. And hopefully they are doing that. But I would just point out that those companies, they're making money more on the old school model, right? They implement your product. And they get paid their full fee. They're not making money over time the way you are. So if, if you implement the product and a year later it's a failure, and don't get me wrong, those companies don't want it to be a failure because that's bad for their reputation and relationship and everything. But nevertheless, if they implement it a year later, it's a failure for reasons that weren't their fault, right? They still get their full pay. But you have canceled contracts and essentially your potential for revenue out of this has been dramatically diminished. Even if you did nothing wrong, the thing just didn't come together. So even when you're working with an integrator, just be mindful that their motivation to make sure that the whole thing works in the end is there, but isn't necessarily as front and center as yours should be when you're on kind of a monthly or even yearly type fee model. That's right. Uh, yeah, agree. And and that transition from the enterprise way of thinking where you get all that customer lifetime value on day one versus the recurring revenue SaaS subscription where you have to continuously earn your customer lifetime value over time as that's at the crux of so many of the challenges that I see in, in the space and that happens, well, just from the nature of we're selling things like we used to sell in a model that doesn't support that anymore. You know, it's not do everything possible to get people to sign on the dotted line so you can make the quarterly quota because in one year, that retention number is going to stink. And that is the value of the business. So it, it, everything that you're saying here makes total sense. And I love how it, the principles, even born inside of some of the largest Fortune 1000 organizations have been around for a long time, equally apply to you know, a, a SaaS business equally apply to a mom and pop business, right? It's the core central thing here is that there's a customer at the center of everybody. 
right? And if you truly understand that and use these steps that you've laid out in your book, I'm guessing that pretty much any business could turn over and achieve this digital transformation in some form or fashion, whatever's appropriate for them. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. Again, just like my story about Fran Leibowitz, there's always an exception, you know, some uh, little taco stand on a Caribbean island somewhere, you know, but by and large, I think with, you know, if you separate out the, the tiny perception uh, percentage that proves the rule, I, th I think that's right. And, and I actually just want to say one more thing about SaaS platforms, because I, I don't want to be misinterpreted as thinking that it's a bad business model because of no. these, these issues. I think there's two, at least two wonderful things about a SaaS business model. And one of them is, of course, that when you do succeed, you become a, kind of an enmeshed part of that company's ongoing operating expense. And you have that potential for recurring revenue over and a potential much larger lifetime value than if they just bought some software from you. So I think that that's great. I, I don't mean to suggest it's a bad revenue model. And it also drives you to make sure that you're really yeah. making the customer successful. And I think that's good for the customer. And ultimately, I think it's good for uh, SaaS companies as well, because it's not really, I mean, look at all the enterprise software companies from Wang to, you know, uh, all Siebel, you know, all these companies that ultimately delivered products that, you know, of course had value in many ways, but didn't really evolve enough, didn't really deliver the value that they promised in many cases. And, you know, ultimately it wasn't a long term, it might've been, they might've had a great quarter, one quarter or a great year. But it's not a long-term sustainable business model to constantly sell products that people regret buying a couple of years late. That's right. You're much better off being a partner. And then all of a sudden you've got five. I mean, I think about a company like Adobe, right? Yeah. In my business, they're, you know, they're, they've moved to a cloud model already probably 10 years ago. And we, we would never in a million years get rid of their tools. They are a part, yeah. they're just part of my annual budget. I just got to pay Adobe a bunch of money for all the Adobe tools we use. And it's just part of the cost. It's like the rent, yeah. you know? And uh, so I think that's great. Yeah, agree. agree. And, and the SaaS model, um, you know, has has brought to light all the challenges that existed in the enterprise world, right? Which was that, you know, sell at all costs and then, you know, just serve and sell additional consulting stuff on top. But the customer wasn't at the center of it there, right? And I think it's a one, the one, most, one of the best innovations in the software industry period because it forces the focus on the customer. If you don't serve the customer, the level of competition that rises in every single SaaS market for every single product, there are many, many different options and opportunities and startups coming up all the time. So the chance of somebody else stealing a customer is a piece of cake and the switching costs yeah. are low because it's so easy. You're absolutely right. I want to make one uh, asterisk on what you said. The customer was in the center, except during the sales process. Fair enough. The customer was absolutely the center. Yes. The experience of Oracle coming in and selling you something was fantastic. Yeah. The question of what happens after you sign a check. That's a very good point. Very good point. And Oracle has been doing some incredible things to transform from enterprise only to a SaaS model in many, many of their business units. A good friend of mine is leading that charge uh, for all of customer success for all of SaaS at Oracle. Right. And it is a massive, amazing thing. But it's so cool to know that one of the largest software companies in the world, that's the, one of the single most important things that they're focused on is transitioning to serve a customer in a different way than they had before. Absolutely. Because, you know, I have no special inside knowledge about Oracle or any of these companies, but I think that the old model was the person who gets you to sign the check gets make, makes $800,000 a year. The person you deal with after that makes $75,000. That's right. 100%. No, that's 100% true. And yep. And thankfully with the SaaS model, that's shifting, 
right? There's, there's dramatically different things because the value of one of those businesses is based on renewals and expansions, not one-time revenue. Super cool. All right, Howard, um, wonderful to spend some time with you today talking about your book, learning all this incredible stuff from your experience. I'm curious, if there was one, one tip, aside from getting the book, which we'll talk about in a second, but if there was one tip that you would give to anybody who might come from a SaaS business, might be in an enterprise business, might be in a mom and pop, a local business, if there was one tip that you would leave in there, what would you say? You know, understanding the customer is the core to everything. And I guess my one tip would be when you think about the issue of understanding the customer, approach it with humility. It's easy to say, oh, I've been around a long time. I've dealt with these people. I know what they want. You know what? First of all, it's really hard. I mean, many of us don't even know ourselves all that well. You know, it's really hard to be able to say, you really understand the customer. And then when you add in the fact they're constantly changing, to approach things with the humility of saying, you know, we probably don't know the customer as well as we'd like to, as we need to, and possibly as well as we think we do. And if we know that that's the core of everything else, then let's make sure we're continuously refreshing and being ready to learn and be surprised by the customer not being in the place that we thought they were, rather than being invested in our own like ego of believing that we know. Love it. Love it. Understanding the customers at the core of everything. Beautiful. Howard, where can people go to get a copy of your book, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance? Sure. Well, it's available most places you would buy books, but my preferred place to send you would be to the book website, which is winningdigitalcustomers.com. And if you go there, uh, you can actually download the first chapter for free if you would like, and you can buy the book directly from us. And there's also links to get it. And if you want to get like the Kindle version or the Apple Books version and the Nook version and all that kind of stuff, all the links are there and you can uh, find that as well. Awesome. Very cool. Winningdigitalcustomers.com. Go ahead, download the first chapter for free, buy the book, get it, go through the five steps um, that Howard's laid out for an incredible customer experience driving digital transformation. Howard, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Really oh, appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, man. And uh, take care and I look forward to hearing about all the incredible things that this audience took away from our episode. So take care and I'll talk to you soon. There you have it. Another great episode of the Customer Strategy Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about how to build a comprehensive customer strategy for your business, you can grab my free download called The Five Things Your Customer Strategy Must Have by going to Glide, G-L-I-D-E, Consulting, LLC, dot com forward slash blueprint. Grab a copy of the guide and take a look at the five things your customer strategy must have. Until the next episode, this is Nils Vinya signing off, reminding you to serve your customers with passion.